0: I'm going to take you back just a little bit to some of the words that I just read to you. I remember memorizing these words a long time ago in grade school, but I read back at that time, it said that you are a peculiar people. And I always thought that was kind of an interesting way to talk about God's people, that they're a bunch of peculiar people. But I think as I have uh, lived longer and I have uh, done a few things in my life, I've been called peculiar more than once. Now, sometimes it's probably well-deserved. Uh, sometimes, hopefully, it's because I have lived a little bit differently than some other people have. Maybe you've not been called nuts or weird or peculiar, or maybe even a Jesus freak like I've been called on occasion. But maybe your activity or maybe your uh, lifestyle is a little bit different than the normal group of people that you come around. And so they have looked upon you as a peculiar person. Well, that's part of this little three or four part message series we're going to do in the next number of weeks from 1 Peter. And it's called Walk the Talk, which is essentially uh, how to live it up and love it up, how to work at being good, uh, not necessarily to uh, gain anything in God's kingdom, but really as a reflection of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to start with this Bible passage today, John 15, 18. And just before Jesus told his disciples in this verse that the world would hate them, in fact, he said to them, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. But just before he had told them that, he had also commanded them to love one another as he had loved them. Now, Peter was present that day to hear both of those. Love me as I've loved them Love other people And by the way, uh, the world is going to hate you Because they hate me Now how do we know Peter was there? Well, very simply because this command uh, All throughout Peter's letter Is talked about Learning to love other people He had this small flock he's talking to in Asia Minor He knew the church was going to thrive On the love that they had found from God And the love they experienced Through each other Now, the big idea behind this text today is simply this. Our Heavenly Father commands that his children are to love one another deeply. And with this in mind, we we must accept that Peter admonishes these first century Christians and really us, the 21st century Christians, to sincerely love one another because the continued existence and emergence of the Christian movement the church is at stake. This morning, uh, we're going to look more closely at this command from 1 Peter 1, verse 22, with the goal of trying to understand it better and exactly what is required of each and every one of us in fulfilling this command. And to do so, I want you to please keep in mind this little maxim it's this the healthy church is made up of healthy Christians. I don't know, you probably already knew that. But if you're going to have a healthy church, you better have a bunch of healthy Christ followers. See, love is a sign of health. I've done church consultation work over the years, and I've walked into a lot of churches that, believe me, when I walked in, I could tell you, these people really love each other. These people really like each other. But I've also walked into some churches where it was pretty obvious They didn't care much for each other. You could tell it by their body language. You could tell it by how far they sat apart from one another in church. You could tell it by the conversations in the hallways. You could do it by all the little parking lot meetings they had after church or after meetings. They just didn't much care for each other. But love is really a clear sign of health for the church. Therefore, healthy churches are made up of Christians who willingly give and willingly also receive love. Some of you perhaps are familiar with Lee Iacocca. Uh, Lee Iacocca was the former head of uh, Chrysler Motors. And when he was writing his book, he talked to the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi, who coached the Green Bay Packers. And he said, what does it take to make a winning team? And in his book, he records what Lombardi said. I want to read this to you. Lombardi said, There are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline but still don't win a game. Then you come to the third ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy and saying to himself, If I don't block that man, Paul is going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his. The difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling these guys have for each other. End of quote. Now, I coached for almost 20 years before going into the ministry. I fully understand that. You've got to be able to get together. You can have the most talented group of basketball players, but if they don't like each other, there'd be some guys, I'm not going to pass the ball to you. I'm not going to scream for you. I'm not going to do anything for you. And everything's a shambles. But see, here's the point in this. In a healthy church, I don't care how big the church is or how small the church is, in a healthy church, each Christian learns to care for others and at the same time learns how to accept care from other people. And as we take seriously Jesus' command to love one another, we contribute to what we might call a winning team. Now, we're going to take a look at understanding this command, uh, the command to love one another. And there are a few things about this. And we're going to start with that, that this command, this divine command to love each other, is a reasonable command. It's important to keep this in mind. When considering the commands of God, and believe me, there are plenty of commands in the Bible from God, this rule generally applies. God never, ever gives us a command without first having lived out that command Himself. See, in other words, God never asks you to do anything that he is unwilling to do first. And when it comes to love, John offers a definitive word on this rule. 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. And Peter's words kind of wonderfully remind us of what Jesus did for us, or what it cost God through his son Jesus, For us even to become his children, Uh, these words are recorded in in verses eighteen and nineteen. It says, "For you know that it was not perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but is with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot." See God's command for us to love one another. It's reasonable. His Expectation that we love one another comes to us as his at his own great expense. But maybe you wonder, okay, if it's a reasonable request, is it really possible for us to truly love one another from our hearts? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, the the, the divine command you see is possible. Uh, it's possible to love one another with sincerity from the heart because. It's a reasonable request. Remember, God never gives you or me any command without first having lived it out himself and shown us how to go about doing that. And so now let me just share a kind of a corresponding rule here. And that is what God commands you to do. He also empowers you to do. I've thought about that many times in my life when I... when I started praying a prayer a number of years ago, and you have to be careful with this prayer, but I started praying, Lord, whatever you ask, the answer is yes, even before you ask. I didn't realize how dangerous that prayer could be. Lord, whatever you want me to do, the answer is yes, even before you ask. Because all of a sudden, God started asking a whole bunch of stuff. And I don't think it was because he necessarily wanted me to do all of that stuff, but he wanted to teach me something in the process. And the things that God led me to do He empowered me to do it Now, believe it or not I told somebody this, this last week They said, well, you're obviously a good speaker A good teacher And I said, yeah I said, But I'm going to tell you something Two things about me that a lot of people don't know Number one, I am an introvert I'd just soon be left alone Maybe some of you are that way The second thing you need to know is, had God come to me early on in life and said, Barry, I I have a bunch of gifts I could give you, Uh, which one would you take? I have a feeling that I would have said anything except public speaking. Now, but God gave me the ability to do that. Uh, Can you imagine sitting on a platform in Nigeria And looking out at a crowd of somewhere between 250 to 300,000 people, and sitting there and saying to yourself, "Man, come on, God, you got some—you got some crazy sense of humor." I mean, what does some white guy have to say to over a quarter of a million black faces? And at the same time, you can hear God saying, "Look, what I have commanded you to do, I will give you the power." To do it. If I've asked you to do this, I'm going to enable you to do it. Now, how do we manage to do this? Well, I think a couple of Bible passages again, in front from our scriptures today. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth. That's part of it. For you have been born again of imperishable seed. See, Peter is saying that when God regenerates you by the power of the Holy Spirit and the living word of God, practically when you have received the gospel... When you have confessed your sins, God forgave us. He instantaneously sends his Holy Spirit into our life. He becomes like what I call the resident president. And he regenerates us. He changes us from the inside out to be brand new spiritual beings. In other words, we use this word sometimes, we were born again. We were born at the day of our birth. but We were born again. And for us as Lutherans, we'd say that's at the point of our baptism. Or if you were baptized a little later in life, it happened when you walked an aisle someplace. You were born again. Now, the tandem work of the Holy Spirit, if you will, and the word is imperishable. Our dead nature, our sinful nature, you know, we were conceived in sin, born in sin. We just plain simple are a bunch of evil, wicked, bad, nasty sinners. Our dead nature was made, what? Righteous. It was made alive one more time in Christ. Therefore, because we've been made alive again in Christ, it is possible for us to love one another and to love one another deeply. I mean, the Spirit of God literally awakens your your soul and your mind and your spirit to God's love. It enables us to love God and then love each other. I mean, Remember that where it says in the Bible, it says, how can you say you love God and you hate your brother? That doesn't work. I mean, if you hate your brother, you've got a problem with somebody else. Your love of God is kind of faulty. But, you know, if you get that love for God, it enables you to love even people who I would call heavenly sandpaper. You got people like that in your life, they're kind of heavenly sandpaper. They just kind of rub you the wrong way. I got them, you got them. And don't be looking at anybody in this church. <laughs> but God says, you know, if you love me, you've got to love them, too. I can remember almost hearing God speak out loud to me one time, and it was kind of like this, Barry, I love more people than you do. Maybe you should think about it. Love them all. Love them all. I mean, think about it. What greater testimony of the power of God in the life of this church, or the life of its people Than to show, first of all That we love one another And that we would love anybody else Who would walk into this place I mean, It's possible to love like God For the very simple reason He's already living in us Without God's Spirit Christ's command for us to uh, Love one another Would be not only unreasonable It would also be downright impossible So this command to love one another deeply Is both reasonable and And possible. And yet, I want to tell you, don't be misguided about this. It may still not be your natural inclination to put the interests of others before your own. It's called sin, isn't it? Selfishness, whatever you want to call it. Self-centeredness. Therefore, this divine command of God requires supernatural strength that can only come from God. And supernatural strength requires... Spiritual growth. And spiritual growth involves eating spiritual food. And this is where Peter turned in our text. I hope you caught what he's talking about. He was actually talking about good food and junk food. Did you know that? He says, Good growth requires good food. Now, didn't your moms already teach you that a long time ago? If you want healthy bones, do what? Drink your milk. Uh, you want 20 20 vision? Eat your carrots. Uh, Protein, my wife says, eat your beans. Yeah, and and the the list goes off and on and on. And Very simply, good growth requires good food. Now, before I go too far again with this point, I want to remind you of my earlier statement. The healthy church is made up of healthy Christians, healthy Christ followers. Therefore, healthy churches are made up of Christians who willingly love and willingly receive love. Now, would you you believe that actually that what you eat positively and or negatively affects your relationships with other people? See, if I want to relate healthily with other people, what I eat is important. I mean, if I digest too much sugar, then I am too tired. If I ingest too much caffeine, then I am too wired. And if I lack the right amount of protein, then I am too mired. And I really don't like being tired, wired, or mired. Wired I can handle a little bit. But you can track many of those same results with food that you choose to eat. The same is true for your soul's spiritual health. Uh, You know, Turn to the person next to you and, and ask them, did you eat something good for me this morning? Gee, something good for me this morning. Nancy. <laughs> See, essentially, what Peter is telling us is that we're going to love our brothers and sisters deeply when we have been eating properly of the stuff that's going to help us grow spiritually. After all, the corporate vitality of this church, any church, is as strong as or mature as the weakest or immature member. And so to assist us with our spiritual diet, Peter actually gives us a great menu, complete with good options on it for our spiritual growth. And and let's be honest, he's also going to talk about junk food. That's going to stunt our growth. But let's talk about good food, first of all. Um, The growth stimulants. Uh, This enhances our spiritual growth, deepens our love for one another. And in the very last verse of our reading this morning, Peter points out that those who have tasted the Lord even like the Book of Psalms, you know, taste taste it and see that He is good. You know, we tasted the Lord, and we've got to say, Man, this is good stuff. Now, Peter's not suggesting cannibalism. He's simply referring to the experience that Christians have with the goodness of Christ and the goodness of his word. Now, interestingly, the word of Christ is understood in two different ways in this. It's called milk in chapter 2, verse 2, of Peter. And it's called meat or solid food. So milk and meat. Now, see if we can understand these metaphors a little bit more clearly. The Bible says we are to move from one to the other. We're supposed to move from milk to meat. And I've got to go back to the first church watch pastor, my assistant, Pastor Willie. He came to church one Saturday night and he reached underneath and he pulled out, you know, these big giant sunglasses you can buy at the county fair. They're really big ones. And he said, These are magic glasses. He put them on. He said, They enable me to see who's spiritually mature and who's not. I remember he put these big things on and he goes, Oh, wow, there's a 68 year old baby back there still sucking on the baby bottle. Oh look! There's an eight-year-old who's full-grown and, and eating a T-bone steak. And I remember him preaching about that. I've always thought about that because there are a lot of there are a lot of kids who literally get it, and they got it early. And then there are a lot of people that are a little bit more advanced in age who still don't. They're still sitting there going, "What? What?" And they're still kind of, you know sucking on the bottle. Now, think about these things. Uh, Milk here. Milk are the elementary truths of the gospel. Things like salvation. Like understanding how we come to be saved. That's the milk. That's a fundamental belief. It's it's understanding what grace is all about, what forgiveness is all about, what baptism is all about, what resurrection is all about. These things draw us together as a Christian community. What makes us a Christian community? Because we understand the milk. We've got this stuff down. How are we saved? By grace, through faith, through Jesus Christ, through the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We know that in baptism, God can ignite faith in the heart of the Lord. We know that when we come to the Lord's table, what, we're receiving the very body and blood of Jesus. We've got that stuff down. That's the milk. And with them, guess what? We all stand on common ground. It was Augustine who said that in the essentials we must have unity, in the non-essentials we must have charity, and in all things... No, I'll get it, I've got it backwards now already. Uh, I'll think about it, we'll come back to it. There's a good quote. I should have written it down in here. Okay, the word of God is meat. Well, now, meat refers to the hard realities of living that common faith out in relationship with God's Spirit in community with one another. It's like moving on to sacrifice. It's moving on to service. It's moving on to practicing forgiveness with other people, actually loving other people. It means literally living out the fruit of the Spirit. Y'all remember what the fruit of the Spirit is? Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, good, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things there is no law. See, and then we take those gifts of the Spirit, and what do we do? We live them out for the betterment of the church, and not for ourselves. So the Word of God, milk and meat, ought to be the daily diet of a healthy Christian. They ought to be the daily diet of a healthy church. Eat it and grow. Eat it and strengthen the church. (laughs) However, as good as the Lord tastes... There's always leftover junk food. It's always sitting around, kind of on the periphery. You all got some of that in your house. I mean, you're all eating the milk and the and, and the meat, but y'all got a little junk food, the little hidden treasures, giant bottle of M and M somewhere, <laughs> that fifty pound bag of Twix rolls you can buy at Sam's, that kind of stuff. Well, as good as the Lord tastes, there's always junk food. And all junk food does is it it stunts our growth and causes our one another in kind of love to decay and deteriorate. Let's talk a little bit about junk food. These are growth stunters. Peter lists five of them on the junk food menu that the Christ follower must stay away from. And in fact, we need to see them as leftovers from the life we used to live before we started eating the milk and the meat. Now, the first of these is malice. Well, what's malice? Well, malice is pure evil. That's what malice is. It is the natural desire in our heart to hurt other people, or at least to wish that something bad would happen to someone else. It's wishing a person got struck by lightning for the lie they just told. Or it's hoping that that someone cheats on a person for that person cheating on you. That's malice. And if you don't get rid of that evil thought, malice is a spiritual liftover that will sicken your Christian soul. And if you allow it to fester long enough, malice will cause unnecessary pain in your body. But you also see deceit. Deceit is the desire to hurt somebody else, harm somebody else through trickery. It lacks honesty. It lacks the truth. A deceitful person hides or knowingly and sometimes unknowingly behind a kind of a facade of uh, perception fabricated to fraudulently relate with other people. Unfortunately, this person is unable to give and receive love. Why? Because love requires honesty and acceptance. Or what about hypocrisy, that great Greek word, "hupocrites," to have two faces? This is a dastardly vice. This is what Jesus condemned in the lives of the Pharisees. The hypocrite covers up his own evil intent with kind of a show of righteousness. And again, the idea behind hypocrisy is to damage or destroy somebody else. And if you have tendencies toward that, guess what? You've got to throw out the leftovers. Put them down the garbage disposal. Fourth is envy. Now, if there's any such thing as spiritual salmonella, it's envy. When envy is allowed to build up within the Christian soul, it, like bad food, it turns on you. You're unable to rejoice with those who rejoice. You're unable to grieve with those people who grieve. I mean, the envious person negatively affects the health of everybody else around them. I mean, I would ask you, are you envious? The next time something good happens to somebody else, <laughs> ask yourself, can I really rejoice with them? If you're sitting there and saying, oh man, those lucky bums, how did they get... Mm-hmm. Time to get rid of some envy. The last one is slander. This is the leftover junk food of slander. I mean, slander is truly anti-Christian. I mean, it comes from the very pit of hell. I'm going to give you a personal example. When Nancy and I left our second church to, to move on, somebody started spreading a rumor in that church that Nancy and I were divorced and I had been fired from the church I'd moved to. To the point that when they put out their brand new directory They listed Nancy's name but not mine Now it's in the past You know, At, at the first I kind of went What, Nancy and I are divorced? Does somebody know something I don't know? <laughs> <laughs> I got fired How come am I getting a paycheck yet? It, it, and I don't know what would Possess anybody to do that other than just Meanness I mean the father of lies Is the chef for that What do we call it? That foul food. I mean, slander's purpose is simply to destroy another person's reputation. Now, as Christians, what do we call it? We're called to love one another deeply from the heart. And while as Christians, we're to build one another up, what does slander do? It only seeks to tear another person down. And slander, I got to tell you, absolutely, positively should never, ever be tolerated within the body of Christ. After all, if that's how you would treat this family, uh, who'd want to become a part of this family? See, we cannot afford those kind of leftovers to tempt us or tantalize us anymore. I mean, these are detrimental to us personally, and they erode the collective soul of whatever community you find yourself in. And to that, Jesus says, What? The world will know you are my disciples if what? You know how it is? if you love one another. See, when we do love one another, especially especially when we love the unlovable among us, we find it's a reasonable and it's a possible command. And when it happens, we reflect the very heart of our Heavenly Father. Well the last thing I want to talk about is getting even with love. How do you love the unlovable? How do you love people who are hard to love? That was the heavenly sandpaper in your life. I want to share a story, read a story that maybe help us with the application of this. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's reasonable and it's possible. And this is a little bit of a story written by a man by the name of J. Allen Peterson. And it comes from a book called The Myth of Greener Grass. This is what he writes. Newspaper columnist and minister George Crane tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. Go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, compassionate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, but to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you could not possibly live without him, then drop the bomb on him. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and said, Beautiful, beautiful. Boy, will he ever be surprised. And she went home and she began doing this with enthusiasm, acting as if. And she did it with, she she showed love and she showed kindness and she listened to him and giving and reinforcing him and sharing. But when she didn't return, Dr. Crane called and said, are you ready now to go through with the divorce? Divorce, she said, never. I discovered I really do love him. See what happened here in this story is that she discovered her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promises as but often repeated deeds. Friends, our heavenly Father has given us a command. Love one another even as I have Loved you. That's a very reasonable command made possible because of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We can love because the scripture says greater is he that is in me than he who is in this world. And so on today I'm just challenging you all, asking you all to make a commitment. A commitment to love it up. Love it up in the body of Christ. And guess what? The more love that's shown within this body of Christ and in our little communities outside, the more people will find something attractive and perhaps want to be a part of this family as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.